And so uh, as we do that, just kind of get everybody caught up on on where we are. Um, most of you know, but I had a great week uh, last week working at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference. Um, in The way it works every summer is in July, we take a group of our students down there for a week, and that's a youth week, and there's about 300 other teens from different churches in the area. But then in August, the Bible conference there at Harvey Cedars down at LBI, they have what they call family weeks. And so for many years, I've been teaching the teens there as well. And so that's where I was last week, kind of working from there, but also um, twice a day teaching. So we had an hour and a half in the morning session, hour and a half in the evening, a session with them and in between working on other stuff. And so uh, it's, uh, it's always a blessing to be there. If you've never been, I suggest that you check it out as a place for a retreat, and they also offer stuff throughout the year. But, um, but it, was, uh, it was good, and it was a time to get to know some other teenagers. Some we see every year, and others are, are new. But, um, uh, but it was uh, also a time where I could um, just sort of sit and, and work while uh, while looking over the the bay and watching the boats and the storms come in and so it's a little blessings like that right that are so nice when um, when you can just kind of work in different areas and so I think it's important I remember as many weeks ago we talked about um, keeping the Sabbath having like a sabbatical rest and whatever that looks like for you and keeping that balance between working and resting and it's so important uh, that we do that, and I was blessed to be able to, uh, I think, have a good balance of that um, this uh, this past week. But um, here's something else that I, I wanted to share, and has everything to do with what we're about to to look at. You know, one of the um, one of the things that I, I highly value in my ministry is preaching through books of the Bible, and it's something that I think is a tradition here, and something that I, I've always done, and. One of the main reasons, of course, for me is that I value it because we go through the whole Word of God and we don't skip over things that maybe we'd rather not talk about or touch on. And so in my preparations for uh, the message this week, that kind of really hit home because this was not a, a fun uh, passage to study, to research, to contemplate and to think about and to pray over. Because in our study of Mark, uh, which is really entitled The Way of Jesus, we see Jesus getting to the cross. And Mark, in his writing style, goes through the life and teaching of Jesus very quickly. But, of course, like the other gospel writers, he's very intentional. uh, God being the inspirer, of course. Being very intentional about different stories that he chooses to include in his account and the life and teachings of Jesus. And... So, of course, we know that everything we have in the Gospels is not every single thing that Jesus did and said, right? So there's many things that he didn't say that were either didn't say and not, not recorded and we don't have it. But God, in his ultimate wisdom and sovereignty, chose exactly um, what we have. And we believe that. And so Mark, right, even in his own personal style that God worked through, he chooses different stories to tell in certain order for certain reasons. So, and so we come to our passage today, and it's Mark chapter 5, and so you can turn to it, and of course in a couple of minutes it'll be up on the screen for you, but it's Mark chapter 5, it's the first 20 verses. And it is this very peculiar 
and weird and even dark and disturbing at times story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man. Now, we've seen Him do that before, but normally when you see Jesus performing His miracles, and especially when it says that He healed people that were possessed, it kind of just mentions it, or you see Him just you know, interacting with the person who was possessed and interacting even with the demon, which is even kind of weird to think about and read, but it's just usually brief. But this story is quite vivid, and as we might even say, quite graphic, and that it's, um, it can be kind of like disheartening in a way to see that there was somebody um, that Jesus came across that was truly possessed by a demon. And so it raises a lot of questions for us that perhaps we haven't really looked at and, and that we need to kind of address, because first of all, I think it brings to mind the reality that, yes, there is a spiritual realm that is real, but that we are a part of it. And it's not something that's kind of just going on out there above our heads, so to speak, with God sort of battling with Satan and his demons. We know the victory is won, but yet there is still that warfare going on where Satan is trying to rob God of all possible glory until he meets his final fate, which he is aware of. And we're going to see that as well. But this is that passage that many of you have heard about where Jesus um, and his disciples are in the boat. We'll kind of give some context in a minute. And they come across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the first person to greet Jesus when he gets out of the boat is this demon-possessed man. And when we're going to read it, you'll see that it gets very detailed about what he was like and what was happening to him in his possession and Jesus' interaction with the demons and then what happens afterwards. And, um, and I think it's kind of like a, a very humbling and sobering reminder of something that perhaps we don't talk enough about. And that is that we have a real enemy. Do you believe that? We do, right? And so uh, we do have a real enemy, and his name is Satan, and we don't like to say the name or talk about it a lot. But I think perhaps to the detriment of us as believers, perhaps the church historically has not given enough attention to the reality and the power of our enemy. But at the same time, we don't want to give him too much influence in our lives, too much attention and uh, too much fame, as it were, because that's kind of happening on its own. And as a church, we don't want to do that as well. And so this morning, I want to make sure that we have a good balance. But this is really God saying, look, if you're going to preach through the books of the Bible, which I think is really important and the best way to preach, you're going to come across some things that maybe you wouldn't normally want to focus on. And that's where we are today. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time doing it, but just like any other passages of Scripture, there are some really important things that we can glean from this about our lives today. So I want to read it, and again, it'll be up on the screen for you. And it's a story that perhaps many of you have read and are familiar with, but never really took the opportunity to study, and uh, I guess I would quite understand that. So this is Mark 5, 1 to 20. And um, keep in mind that this is um, true. This is a true story. 
Uh, So let's read it. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces, for no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, He ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, meaning Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus then asked him, What is your name? Meaning asking the Spirit. The Spirit replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. So the herdsmen fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. The one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those that had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, meaning the townspeople, began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, The man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. But he did not permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Isn't that amazing? You know, when I first read it, I feel like this could be like a Hollywood script, right? I mean, as they say, you can't make it up, but it really happened. And of course, we know as Christians reading the scripture, how amazing it is, how varied the stories are. But here is one where Jesus meets and heals a man possessed by many demons, And you know, it's really interesting to say this could have been something like in a movie. You know, I remember, and again, this is kind of why I didn't quite enjoy 
the whole process of you know working through it. But I remember as um, as a kid, it was back in 1973 that very famous movie, The Exorcist, came out. And I'm sure many of you have seen it, and we're not going to go over it, but you can even see here's the power of it. You can picture in your mind scenes from that movie, and I think it was really the first time, at least in graphic detail and so vivid, kind of like our story depicts now, that Hollywood had kind of put out something for people to see about what perhaps demonic possession could look like. Now, of course... The writers and, you know, the producers and the makers, like, they were trying to make money and it's entertainment to some degree. That's what people would say. But for us, you know, we might see something like that and have this picture in our head. And and why do I bring that up? Because, you know, in our part of the world and in our society, in our own little worlds, we don't really see that on a day-to-day basis, do we? Or even probably ever in our lifetime. We normally kind of um, relegate stories like this, or what's even depicted in movies like that since then. That was 1973, by the way. I was three years old. How old were you? No, I'm not going to ask you. But, you know, we kind of, we kind of um, regulate, or relegate, I should say, these kind of things to like third world countries, or maybe missionary tales of when they were in certain parts of the world and they came across demon-possessed people. But we don't really come across that in our culture. It doesn't seem to be something that is a regular occurrence, at least in the westernized world. But I think perhaps it's dangerous to fall into that. Because although we might not see it to this degree, we would be remiss to dismiss it. And say that it doesn't happen. Or it only happens in small pockets and corners of the world where they actually worship Satan. But you know the scary thing is, is that worship of the enemy is unfortunately alive and well in every culture and society. You know, um, Of course, I don't believe in coincidence, and so it was Wednesday that I started to do sort of most of my reading and research, you know, and in um, reading up on this passage. But it was Monday or Tuesday that I received an email from a friend in church talking uh, about an article that they had read in the paper uh, on the rise of Wicca and um, and Satan worship and worshiping of the dark arts, whatever you want to call it, and. Um, it was just based in New York City and in our tri-state area, and that just how the um, the rise of the the interest in um, in this kind of thing among millennials, especially I mean all ages, but especially among young people, and it was quite disturbing even to find out the way that that many people come to it. And this is kind of one of the things we glean from it is that most people will fall into or find their way into these types of um, religious um, occultic practices because they're searching for something of meaning in their life. But you know what? That goes for everybody. But doesn't that just remind us in a very stark way that we, as Jesus followers, need to be out there sharing our faith with people because we need to remember everybody we see throughout every day is searching for meaning in their life, whether they would admit it or 
even quite know it or not. And so people will find their way because our adversary, the enemy, is a deceiver, is he not? Now he often, most often, doesn't manifest himself with a demon possession such as this. That's not his normal modus operandi, as we would say. But he is normally quite subtle and deceitful. Even to the point where he has influenced the church to not maybe talk about this subject often enough. You know, it's um, some recent surveys and statistics have shown, which is quite uh, amazing, that between 2011 and 2016, just those five or six years, the psychic industry, that's the palm readers and the psychics, you see them, that industry grew by 2%. Now that might not sound like a lot, but it is an industry worth over $2 billion that people spend on going just to palm readers and psychics alone. And between 2011 and 2016, that grew by 2%. There was a Pew Research survey that was done that said the percentage of young people between ages 18 to 29, which by the way is when most people come to Christ, as a youth pastor I would recognize that all the time, that it's when they are young that we really have people to be influenced because after that age of 29 or 30, the rate of people accepting Christ drops dramatically so during this age group 18 to 29 people right young men and women who say they never doubt the existence of god dropped from 81 percent to 67 percent in just five years 2007 to 2012 that amazing so as younger people especially who used to say on the whole that they don't doubt the existence of God, now there is more and more doubt. Isn't that a tactic of the enemy? See, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of all humans, which means we have this in our DNA to be connected with God. God is spirit. We are spirit. We know that everybody ever created by God will live eternally But we know there's a big question mark there. Where is it that you will spend eternity and with whom or without whom, as we should say? Therefore, people have this natural desire to know what's happening in that spiritual realm because there is part of our created being that understands, even if we can't define it, that we are part of something greater. And so people search for a higher meaning, a higher power, what many people call it. And often, unfortunately, our enemy deceives people, drawing people towards himself and away from God. So I just want to do a, a brief overview of some specifics of this story and then just land on, on focusing on two things to end with. And those two things are simply this. We need to understand, church, what Scripture says about Satan, about his demons, about being possessed by them or affected or influenced by them. But then also we need to be reminded of who we are. Who we are in Christ 
means all the difference. So in this story, it takes place right after, of course, the last story that Mark tells, when Jesus and his disciples go out on the boat. Remember, we talked about it last time. Jesus had been teaching all the people. They were on the beach and he was out on the boat because there were so many people in the crowd. So he gets on the boat and after that full day of teaching, he tells his disciples, let's get in some boats and we're going to go. We're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they all get in the boats and on their way, there's the big storm. And we went through that and he's sleeping in the back of the boat and they couldn't believe it. And we looked at what it meant to be in Jesus' presence and not have to fear. But right after that happened, it might even have been at night because it says they were going to the other side. They get to the other side and it says, Jesus, when he steps out of the boat, this is what happens. So the disciples were afraid of the storm and Jesus calms the storm. And now they meet this demon-possessed man who it says had supernatural strength given to him by the evil one that he was bound in chains but broke the chains and the shackles in to pieces. And one commentator said that maybe you can picture like the Incredible Hulk. And I kind of laughed and I said, okay, there's an image, but you know what? Nothing to laugh at. But we understand the picture of somebody with superhuman strength. That power was not from God. See, Mark's whole purpose and the main reason he's sharing this story is because, remember, Mark is showing to the people that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that was God. And see, so he tells the story of Jesus calming the storm at sea because he is God over the natural. Because as God, he created it. But then he follows up with a story about Jesus being the God of the supernatural. See, Jesus has power over the winds and the waves, but he also has power over Satan and his demons. Why is that important to us? It's important because we have to remember that God wields absolute power. And Jesus is that promised Messiah. See, all through the Gospel of Mark, you see it as a theme that Mark is getting that point across. Because right at the very beginning of Mark, he says this is the account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, who the Son of Man, the Son of God. So he starts off by saying, this is my thesis. Jesus is God, and I'm going to show you accounts from his life, what he did, what he said, to back that up. And so Jesus calms the storm at sea, and now he heals a man who is possessed by legion, which really means a multitude of demons. I mean, we can't even wrap our minds around that. But that's exactly what's going on. Legion was really just a word for many. It was a word that the Romans would have known because you'd often hear that term of Roman legion. It meant about five or 6,000 troops. So this doesn't necessarily mean that this man was possessed by 6,000 demons. But what it means when even the demon himself says, I am legion, when Jesus says, what is your name? He's saying, I am many. But let's look at some key aspects of this story. First, we notice, of course, that Jesus gets out of the boat and it's the first thing that he and his disciples come across is this man. So this man had been living among 
among the tombs. These are most likely caves or sort of rock outcroppings where people would bury their dead. They were tombs, what we know a tomb to be. But he had been cast out by the community to the tombs. He was bound in chains, but it said those chains and shackles could not even hold him. And it said day and night he kind of roamed and lurked on the mountainside and in these caverns and caves. And what was he doing? It said always doing what? He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Cutting himself with stones. I want to stop right there for a second. First of all, why would Mark kind of give that description and why would this demon-possessed man be doing that? And I think one of the clearest images we have is that Jesus as God recognizes that we are all, as human beings, created in the image of God. Do you remember back in Genesis when God in the Trinity, the God had said, let us make them in our image. See, church, we are created in the image of God. It doesn't mean that God has a face like we do. What does it mean that we're created in the image of God? It means that we have a heart of love because God is love, right? We can have compassion because He is compassion. It is those traits and characteristics, the nature of God, that He chooses to share with us His creation, the Creator sharing with the creation. So we are made in the image of God, and we need to understand that. So one of the things that our enemy will do often is try to mar and taint and damage that image. Did he not do it with the the serpent in the garden when he deceived Adam and Eve? Because Satan knew from day one what he was facing. And that is ultimate doom. We're going to see the, the demon knows that too. See, but Satan came to taint and to destroy, right? And to mar the very thing and beautiful creation of God. And that is us. And so Satan wants to distort and destroy anything that God creates and anything made in His image. And that includes us. And so, the demon-possessed man is cutting himself. Could you even imagine what, it, what he would have looked like? Hard to imagine, right? Again, maybe we go back to movies or paintings that we've seen to have an image of something we've never seen ourselves. But this man was cutting himself with stones. But then it says, when he saw Jesus from afar, look at what he does. He ran and he fell down before Him. Because the demon recognizes who he is see every time that we see jesus approaching somebody who is possessed the demons recognize him they don't say who are you and where do you have this power from they recognize him because he calls out to jesus and says what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god did you catch that here is the demon uh, talking to jesus saying you're the son of the most high god what do you want with me And then he pleads with him. He falls down before him, not to worship him, but to fall down before him and says, I adjure you, which means I plead with you before God, which is an interesting statement. Do not torment me. The man is being tormented enough. 
the demon recognizes his ultimate fate. Jesus was saying to him, come out of this man, you clean spirit, which is what Jesus had always done. But then he interacts with him more. He says, what is your name? The demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. But then it says in verse 10, that this legion, these many demons, begged Jesus, it says, in earnest, not to send them out to the countryside. Is that curious? Why not? I think it's very simple. It's this. See, Satan and his followers, the demons, the fallen angels, they know their fate. They still know it today. And their fate is ultimately to be cast into the pit of fire, to the abyss at the end of all things, by Jesus himself And they're almost saying, like, we know that's our fate, but now is not the time yet. So don't cast us there just yet. Isn't it interesting that even the demons know the power of Jesus? Why? Because He is God. And so, they beg Him. The demons plead with Jesus after recognizing Him as the Son of the Most High God. And they say, don't send us out to the abyss where we cannot do our thing. Give us permission to go into these pigs. And so it says that there was this herd of about 2,000 pigs. I've never seen a herd of pigs that big. So there were obviously pig farmers or swine farmers and herdsmen right in that area let's just remember where they were so they were on the eastern side of the sea of galilee if you can picture it further away from jerusalem and israel so it was mostly a gentile area it could have been jewish people who were raising these swine but that would have gone against their law because you remember the hebrews the jewish people did not eat pork they didn't eat the pigs they saw them as unclean which they are. So the next time when you go out after church and you go to the diner and eat your bacon, just remember that. But see, our Jewish friends, they still, they see it as unclean, see? So they were probably Gentile herdsmen who had, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, these herds of pigs going to, of course, sell them to market. And so these, these demons trying to be crafty, they say, Jesus, give us permission to go into these swine and So look, Jesus doesn't command them to do it, but He gives them permission. And so they do. And so for a brief moment, the demons possess these pigs. And then it says something amazing and curious happens. It says immediately the whole herd, about 2,000, rushed down the hillside and into the sea and drowned immediately. So the demons didn't really get what they wanted. They inhabited these swine briefly for a brief moment. So let's stop right there for just a second. Why on earth would God allow these demons, even for a moment, to possess the pigs? Here's the answer. I have no idea. (laughs) It doesn't say. All right? So anything else could be conjecture. But perhaps... Let's just remember this, because this is biblical and this is important. God is the God of all creation. We just saw it when He calmed the waves and the winds. And so those pigs, those swine, belonged to Jesus anyway. See, they were His. They were His creation. 
Yeah, and we can think like from the herdsman point of view, great, Jesus just took away their whole livelihood. But there was a cost in this instance for the healing of the demon-possessed man. Jesus gave permission for them to inhabit and possess the swine, and they did. We know there's always a cost comes to salvation and forgiveness and our rescue and that's ultimately in the blood of the one who just did that and that is jesus so he gives permission to the demons to possess the swine and they rush down the hillside into the sea maybe jesus caused them to do that it doesn't say but we know that's what happened and i kept you know as i read this i'm trying to just remind myself like this is not a parable. This is not a story. It's funny, I spent the whole week teaching the teenagers at Harvey Cedars about parables. We went through a bunch of parables of Jesus. But as I'm going back and forth of preparing those lessons and teaching that, and I'm reading this, I keep reminding myself, this is not a parable. Jesus didn't say there once was a, like this actually happened. Jesus got out of the boat. There was a man who was actually possessed by a legion of demons who had enough strength to break chains and shackles into pieces to the point where the townspeople were so afraid they cast him out and he lived among the rocks of the mountain and among the tombs. It's almost like they wished he was dead. Now, in one way, you can kind of sympathize and say, what were they to do? I mean, Jesus is the only one that could heal him. That's sort of the whole point of Mark telling the story. Jesus is God. He's the only one with the power to do it. What could the townspeople do? We don't know what measures they took to try to help this guy. But we do know it ended up with him among the tombs. Outcast from society. But then look at this interesting development. So what happens is, towards the end of this account... It says after he did that, after the, the, uh, the demons went into the swine and they rushed down the, the, um, into the sea and drowned, it says then the herdsmen, they saw it, they went into the city and the country, they told everybody, and all the people came running back to see what had happened, and they come across the demon-possessed man, and he is healed. And he is not climbing among the rocks or the tombs, he's not crying out, cutting himself anymore, he is sitting there fully clothed and in his right mind and look at what it says in verse 15 they saw that and they were afraid think about that first they were afraid of him because he was possessed by the demon now they're afraid because now he's not possessed and there's jesus who has an even greater power these people were just afraid but kind of shows us they were they were afraid And just before, the disciples had been afraid. Remember they were afraid of the storm and they saw Jesus calm the winds and the wave and it said that they were afraid of Him? We don't think of Jesus that often of instilling fear in people, do we? We don't say the name of Jesus and people shudder, right? It's usually Jesus, meek and mild, right? People were afraid of Jesus. Why? They didn't understand the power. And here's why I bring that up. Because when we talk about the reality of an enemy and the reality of the fact that there is a spiritual realm and we are part of it because we are spirit, we know the Scripture teaches us 
that we are to be aware of it, to understand its dangers, but to know ultimately that God is victorious over it all. So I want to share some scriptures with you briefly and then just bring this on home to what we can walk away with today. It says in Genesis 3.15 that the Redeemer will crush the enemy's head. That was a promise, right? That was a promise that God would one day come and undo what Satan had done when he came to disrupt and to destroy the image of God in all of his creation, most importantly us, Jesus, uh, God said, one day I will send a Redeemer and He will crush your head, Satan. He will overcome you. And did not Jesus do that on the cross and then being risen on the third day, defeating death? So we know that the victory is won. 1 John 3.8, and I'll go through these quickly, says, the Son of Man has come for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. How about you write that one down? If nothing else from this morning, you remember 1 John 3.8. The Son of Man has come for this purpose to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. Why? Because way back in Genesis 3.15, God said, I will send a Redeemer who will finally destroy the evil one, and that is Jesus. He's the only one with that power. Luke 11.20 If I cast out demons by the finger of God, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, remember the religious leaders had accused Jesus of having worked in the power of Satan? We looked at that a few weeks ago. That's what he called the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. That was the final straw when Jesus knew that the people of Israel, especially religious leaders, were rejecting him as their Messiah. When they said, finally, we accuse you, we recognize your power, but we believe it's from Satan. And Jesus then says, how can Satan be against Satan? If I'm casting out demons, how can a kingdom divided against itself stand? It would fall. Jesus says all that, and then he says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of the finger of God, then truly the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what Mark is trying to get across by sharing this story. Jesus is God. How about Ephesians 6.12? What a perfect reminder for us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Have you ever read and kind of contemplated that verse? Ephesians 6.12? Paul says to the church, Our struggle is not a political one. It's not one of battle between uh, armies. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, human against human. But as Christians, our struggle is against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of what? This dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He says it's in the heavenly realms, but it's our struggle. Let's make sure we understand that. Why? Because Satan wants to influence us, wants to attack us when we're weak. There's this passage in 1 John 4. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's about testing the spirits. You can write it down and read it later. It's 1 John 4, 1 through 6. 
where Jesus talks about, yes, we can, um, actually it's in 1 John 4, uh, the writer's talking about how we can test spirits of good and spirits of evil. The spirit of truth and the spirit of, of error. And you know, uh, to sort of just summarize what he says, he's saying, you know how we do that? Because we have the spirit of truth within us. See, that's the hope and that's the comfort. That's the power that we have to proclaim victory in Jesus over the evil one and his influences in our life. In Matthew 12, another passage you can write down, I won't read it, but Matthew 12, 43 to 45, Jesus says something interesting. He's talking about the people of Israel and how they had been disobedient. And he says, look, you know what you're like? You're like a man who is possessed and then healed. And then the demon says, where should I go now? Who should I possess? I know I'll go back to my home. I'll go back to the person that I did possess because they tried to fix up their own life. But now there's room for me and a bunch of other demons. It's an interesting story that Jesus tells. It's kind of a parable. And he says it in Matthew 12, 43 to 45. So Jesus is basically saying this, and this is our takeaway from that. We find salvation in Christ, but what we cannot do is deceive ourselves that we can then live the rest of our lives just figuring, Jesus, we've got it from here. We, we have enough control, we have enough power, we can overcome all of the fears and the depressions, the anxiety. We, we can take control of it, God. We got it from here. Jesus like, if you do that, what you're doing is you're giving a foothold to the enemy. Is that not a powerful picture? Did you ever just like put your foot in a door so you could get in? I remember one time when one of my kids, I guess it was my son who was doing this, and he was in his room and didn't want to come out, you know, and didn't want to talk because we had an argument, and he opens the door to say no, and I put my foot in there. And of course, he goes to slam the door, and that really hurt. (laughs) But the idea is I had a foothold. You see, that's where it comes from. I had a foothold. Why? Because now I could get in. I mean, now he's bigger and stronger than me, but back then he wasn't. But then I could get in, but that's what that whole thing means, to give something a foothold, right? We know what that's like. When the door is closed, it cannot be opened. Satan cannot open the door to influence you only if you let him have a foothold. And what an important truth to know. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith and your trust in him, Scripture plainly says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, believe in him, right? If we recognize when we do that, that we accept the truth of who He is, He is God, the Messiah, the only one to take away our sinful nature, but also putting our trust in that for eternal life. If we have done that, we are a believer in Jesus. And that's the case. Scripture also gives us a great hope that we, at that moment of salvation, have the Holy Spirit with inside of us. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. From that moment... Until Jesus returns or He calls us home, we have the Holy Spirit within us. Now there's a difference, and that's a whole other sermon about being filled. I believe there's a difference, a big difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling. The filling is very simply recognizing we need to be obedient and submissive to to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. When we do so, then we are allowing Him to fill us. It's very simply putting aside those things that we let get between us and God, those sins those sinful thoughts, actions, words, whatever it is, those things in our life that we allow to come between us and God, 
that takes up too much room and the Spirit can't do His thing. See, we're indwelt with the Spirit, but He doesn't automatically lead us into holiness, does He? No, we have to allow Him to do it. That's called obedience. But see, at the moment of salvation, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean in the context of this passage? That a true believer in Jesus Christ can never be possessed by a demon. Because if you have the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your life, there is no room for the evil one. Now, what can Satan do in the life of a believer? Plenty. If we let him have the foothold, it's that old adage, you give somebody an inch, and what do they take? A mile. Do we don't want to do that with our enemy. If we recognize that he is real, and that as Ephesians 6.12 says, that our battle and our war wages against those in the heavenly realm because we are spirit, and it's sobering. To remember that our enemy is real, but then here's where we land. We also know that our God is real, and greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Because the Bible often talks about Satan being the God of this age, right? The prince and the power of the air. Like, this is His world system. Remember, we went through that whole story talking about. When Satan deceived Adam and Eve, he usurped that power that God had given them as his ambassadors to this earthly kingdom. But God promised one day he would send a redeemer to take back that kingship, and that is the king, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus was going around teaching, healing people, performing miracles, casting out demons, proving and backing up his words that he is God. So we need to know what Scripture says about it. These and many others show us that the spiritual realm is real, that we are part of it. Sometimes people say, you know, I woke up and I I saw an apparition in my room. Or I saw what I thought was a ghost. What do you say to something like that? I would never tell a believer that they didn't see what they thought they saw. I don't know I wasn't there. But what I do know is this. If you see something like that, you have this experience, whatever it might have been, I guarantee you one thing, as a believer, Jesus was right there with you. He saw the same thing. We might have a fear. or We might be affected by something like that. A vision or something of that nature. But we need not fear. Because God and His love casts out all fear. That's why Mark shares the story of Jesus calming the storm. Because the disciples were afraid. And He said, don't, don't have such little faith. Don't be afraid. I am with you. And Jesus casts out the demon. And then the man is sitting there. And the people are still afraid. See, I think those people in this, this account, they really represent those who were afraid and unwilling to repent. Why? Because they cast Jesus out of their midst. See, Jesus casts out the demon, and then the people are like, we don't want you around, Jesus. Can you imagine that? They saw this awesome display of power, and they say, we don't want you here. Why? Yes, you took our 2,000 pigs, but also, we're not interested. We don't know what to make of this, so we want nothing of it. Some people are like that with Jesus, aren't they? 
They're just so indifferent or even antagonistic. We don't want to know anything about it. But let's remember what I said at the beginning, that everybody, because of what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that everybody has it written on their hearts to know that they will live forever. They are bigger than just this life. And people are searching. But church, we have what they're looking for. And that's Jesus, the only one who brings hope. And finally, know who you are. Know the power of God in your life. Know that you are called the child of God if you have put your faith and trust in Him as Savior. That you are protected. That we can claim victory over the evil one because God has won that victory for us. And again, He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. It's His authority that covers us. It was His authority that cast down the winds and the wave to protect the disciples. It was His authority and only His authority that cast out the many demons from the demon-possessed man. We can stand on His promises that He has already conquered the grave, that He has already conquered the evil one. Even the demons said it's not time. Why don't... Just have pity on us, Jesus, Son of the God of Most High, and cast us into the swine. Give us permission to do that. It's not our time yet. Please don't cast us into the abyss yet, because they knew that was their fate. So let's remember that as well. We have an enemy, and he is real, and he has power and influence only if we let him. But he does because he's trying to rob God of as much glory as he possibly can. We also have access to the full armor of God. But you know what? We don't automatically have that armor on to protect us from the fiery darts of the evil one. We are to put on the armor of God. Isn't that what we're told to do? So we have access to that armor But if we don't recognize that we have an enemy who has power and wants to influence us and pull us away from God in a very deceitful and subtle way, or even as he does when people give enough foothold to possess them, if they are not yet believers, then as believers, what do we do? We stand on the promises of God and we say, God, you've given us access to the full armor. Let's put it on. It's like going out into battle and saying, yeah, look, there's all this equipment. And all these things I can use to help protect myself, but I got it. I can do this on my own. Put on that full armor of God. Why? Because we're in a battle. That's why you put on the armor, because you're going into battle. So the Bible tells us that we battle not against flesh and blood, but we battle against the spiritual realm, the authorities, the power of darkness, So don't ever, brothers and sisters, don't ever give Satan a foothold. Don't fool around with things like psychics and tarot card readers and all that. I know there's many Christians that say, well, it's just, it's innocuous and it's no big deal. That is giving a foothold. I've heard story after story. You probably could share them yourselves of people, maybe even yourself, that have done that. That's giving them a foothold. So you have to know what that looks like for you, but we understand Right? There are things that are pretty obvious, but Satan almost always works in a very deceitful way. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. So it gives us even more reason to be ready, to be prepared.
to be knowledgeable of these things, not to give him too much attention, but to never dismiss the reality that Satan and his demons exist. And they exist to do one thing, to take people away from God, to take love, to take worship, to take joy and glory away from God the Creator. We are his joy. We are his glory. We are his masterpieces. We are the ones that he loves and created. So put on that full armor of God. Protect yourself. Know what that looks like for a follower. So I'm going to pray for us, and we just want to close with this brief song that will remind us of that power that we have, the power in Jesus and Him alone. So call on His name when you're feeling tempted with no matter what. Call on His name and the power that we have in Him. For He has the power to calm the storms of life and to cast out the evil one from having any influence in our life. Let's pray. Father, um, God, we come across stories like this. We know it's true. And even more sobering that is to know that this is not just made up and based on a true story, but this is true. And so, God, we know there's a lot to take away from it, but, Father, that there's also... God, there's a part of it we just don't want to think about it. But yet we know it's all too real. And so there's a reason that as we read the gospel stories of your life, Jesus, that we see that you were casting out demons and you interacted with them. But we know ultimately it's to give us that reminder and hope that, yes, greater is you because you're in us than he, meaning the enemy who's in this world, Let us also be reminded that Ephesians 6.12, God, you tell us so plainly that we are in this battle, but you give us the armor. You give us the means to go into that battle, and you are our protector. So thank you, God, that we can proclaim those promises, that we can proclaim that victory is already won, that the evil one has been defeated, And he's going down, but he's doing all he can to take as many people with him, as much glory and honor away from you, God, but we won't let him. We won't give him a foothold. So we will proclaim the truth. We will sing of those realities that we have that power within us, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we have been set free to live holy and righteous lives and that we no longer need to fear anyone, ourselves, or even the enemy. Because you are our God. We thank you. Thank you for loving us, for protecting us, for guiding us and watching out for us and providing us with the armor that we need to live this life victoriously for you in the face of any enemy. So God, through it all, and at the end of the day, we say thank you for Jesus because he's the one that won that victory for us. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?